0: New York City has long been known as a food lover's paradise. From its fine restaurants to its street food, the city has something for every palate. I'm George Polarkey, and this is Cityscape. Our guest on this edition of Cityscape is Kathy Kaufman. Kathy is the associate editor of Savoring Gotham, a food lover's companion to New York City. Kathy, thanks so much for coming into our studio. My pleasure. So in a word, how would you describe the food scene in New York City? Luscious. Luscious. That's a good word.
1: I think it is luscious because of the extraordinary diversity we have in New York, both ethnicity and uh, oat cuisines in New York, some experimental cuisines. Uh, We've got just an amazing, amazing array. The stores, the restaurants, it's pretty luscious.
0: So how has the food scene evolved over the years?
1: Ooh, that's a big question. Uh Um, It has evolved both to show new ethnic influences. Uh, I think um, I came to New York in the mid-'70s. From where? Uh, Well, I was in college in upstate New York and grew up uh, just outside the city in New Jersey. And I can tell you when I moved to New York in 1977, the food scene was just starting to change, but it was still kind of bleak. What you had were these generic continental restaurants that were kind of vaguely French-inspired, but they weren't very good. And over the next 10 years or so, by the mid-1980s, you saw this extraordinary uh, development of both higher-end ethnic influences in cuisine that made the food scene a lot more interesting and as neighborhoods in some senses unfortunately became gentrified. That also did lead though to the uh, explosion of good quality food, not all of it expensive, uh, but just a much greater focus on high quality, well-prepared, interesting food.
0: What ethnicities would you say have had the greatest influence on the food scene in New York City?
1: Through time, um, the answer will change. Mm -hmm. If we go back 100 years, what you would see would be a tremendous amount of German influences, uh, some at that point Italian influence, some Eastern European, largely Jewish influences. What you've seen from the mid-1960s forward Uh, has been a real explosion of Chinese influences. There was always some Chinese food made by Chinese emigres from the late 19th century, but starting in the 1960s with changes in the immigration laws You had an incredible explosion of Chinese food, South Asian food, Southeast Asian foods, certainly uh, South American, especially Mexican influences, although we still don't have as great Mexican food as some other cities do. That's one place where I think we're improving, but we still have a little ways to go. But it really has been changes in the immigration laws that have uh, changed what the food is like. Follow the immigration patterns and you'll follow the food.
0: You referenced Chinese food. Now, this book talks about chop suey joints. And we really don't have chop suey joints per se anymore, right?
1: No, No, not anymore. Chop suey was something that was an incredibly popular, rage, fad-like thing in the very late 19th through the early 20th century and beyond. And it was a little bit of a joke because chop suey is kind of leftover mishmash of food. I mean, it's something that certainly could be found in a very limited area in China, and it was Chinese immigrants from that area who actually were in the U.S. and introduced chop suey to the American palate. But we have this disproportionate image of chop suey as being the quintessential Chinese dish when it's actually a very small regional subset of food. But because those were the people who were here, they introduced it, and that's when it became a fad. And it seemed... um, A little dangerous and exotic because you didn't quite know what was in it, and yet it was good. So people enjoyed it and became quite the fad.
0: Now, this book, Savoring Gotham, is jam-packed with factoids, factoids Mm -hmm. like those of the chop suey joints, but also facts like the Tootsie Roll Mm -hmm. was invented in New York City.
1: It was, and I'll have to be perfectly honest, that was not one of the uh, entries I was responsible for, so I know it was invented in uh-huh. New York, but I really can't tell you much more other than you got to read the entry.
0: Which were among your entries?
1: Oh, let's see, things like, how about the cronut? You wanna the talk cronut, about,
0: Dominique Ansel. Yeah,
1: let's talk about the cronut let's, let's a little do. bit, uh-huh. because the cronut, to me, um, I must confess, I've never had a cronut, because I will not get up at 6 a.m., to line up for the privilege of buying one or two cronuts in the morning. I'm just, uh, I like my beauty sleep too much. <laughs> However, I think it is a brilliant and fascinating look as to how media has changed the way we react to foods and how food fads are created. Because within the space of one week, social media catapulted this item to this cult-like status um, Ansel was brilliant. He has a Facebook page for the bakery, and he had a birth announcement for the cronut (laughs) saying something wonderful is happening. Wait for it. Tomorrow it's going to be unveiled. Within six days, he had trademarked the name cronut. There was a hashtag cronut fever that was going around, and he was on Fox and Friends talking about the cronut, and within a month, there were imitators. So this is something that in this extraordinarily compressed period of time, add the social media, add the fact that he is a superb baker. Mm -hmm. So even if I have not had the cronut, I am sure it is delicious and worth every penny. And the fact that he made it such a... uh, exclusive hard to get item because he was only baking 350 of them a day you could buy one or two no more uh, and it became this you know cult fascination Uh, now to be completely fair he was also terrific about it because he used the fascination for some philanthropic purposes using it for fundraisers things like that so it was not just a super yuppie elite uh, event although you know Let's face it, some people allegedly paid others to stand Mm -hmm. online to buy Cronuts for them. I mean, only in New York, right?
0: Yeah. That said, though, do you think that in order to be successful in New York as a chef, as a baker, you also need to be a savvy marketer these days? Or has it always been that case?
1: Certainly marketing can help. And I think we've all had the experience of going to restaurants that have had wonderful marketing campaigns and then thinking, ah, eh, the food was not so good. And then certainly I've had the experience of having favorite neighborhood restaurants that do no marketing and eventually they just can't make it. Uh, but there has been historically uh, a real effort to do different forms of marketing. I mean, some of the earliest restaurants, uh, Delmonico's, which was the trademark elegant restaurant in New York from the 1830s up until the time Prohibition was instituted. I mean, it had competition later in the 19th century, but it started as the big restaurant. Uh, It had a celebrity chef for a while in the latter part of the 19th century, Charles Ranhofer, who wrote a cookbook called The Epicurean? And in The Epicurean, he has pages upon pages of menus of things that were served at Delmonico's or private parties that were catered through Delmonico's. Uh, and it was putting that sense of elan associated with the name. And you still see it. I mean, in some of the fascinating things, going back briefly to Chinatown. In the very late 19th century, there was a Chinese restaurant on Mott Street that called itself the Chinese Delmonico's. Mm. And that's where you went to get, quote, the best Chinese food. There's still these uh, little um, shops, uh, you know, with takeout counters and foodstuffs that are the Delmonico's chain, not at all related to the original uh, restaurant, but trading on the reputation of Delmonico's as being, you know, the ultimate. And you know, they have prices to match, I can tell you. you know, For hmm. a uh, food market, they're they're pretty expensive.
0: Delmonico's has stood the test of time. Other restaurants hmm. in New York City have not. Bickford's gone. Okay.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Just you know, you can only have so long a run in New York and Bickford's it, it met the end of its rope.
0: That was a family restaurant, right?
1: Uh, it was a family restaurant. Again, not one that I am as familiar with as some others. Um, but, you know, there have been so many different family restaurants that have had different uh, runs. I mean, look at the Second Avenue Deli. And that's, mm-hmm. you know, that was a fabulous family-run restaurant. It's moved. It's not the same. You know, you needed to have, I I think, almost a sense of terroir, of putting that restaurant on the Lower East Side, 2nd Avenue, which at the time it opened, was still a very, very heavily Eastern European Jewish uh, sort of neighborhood. And it really expressed what the surrounding clientele was like.
0: Before there was McDonald's, before there was Dunkin' Donuts, there was Needix. Oh, yeah. Yeah, That was the fast food chain in New York City, essentially, right?
1: It was the fast food chain. And, you know, the hot dogs, I mean, the late lamented uh, Needix hot dog. I guess we've got Papaya King or a few Papaya King outlets left uh, now that fill the bill. But it's uh, it's hard to get a good hot dog, at least on the street. You can't uh, can't go into one of these grab-and-go sorts of places for a hot dog anymore. Although, there are gourmet hot dog places now.
0: Are there really?
1: There are some. They prefer to think of themselves, I think, as sausage places. Um, and they trade on their German roots and, you know, talk about their different versts, their bratwurst, things like that. You can get a currywurst there, talk about fusion food and putting the curry with the verst but it certainly exists both here and in Germany it's not something that we uh, completely invented the Germans had it too
0: now hot dogs are quintessentially New York so is pizza yes and pizza in fact was invented in New York City right not Naples Italy is that fair to say
1: Different type of pizza. Okay. Different style of pizza. Pizza definitely was in Italy in the 18th and uh, especially 19th centuries in Naples. And but pizza, is,
0: as we know it today, I guess is it's a little New yeah, York. yeah yeah. Okay. It's a
1: little bit different. Um, but you know there are a lot of comp- uh, competing pizzas. In New York, you've got the New York style pizza, which I think Lombardi's is the quintessential New York style pizza. It's done in a coal fired oven. Lombardi's is the first at least fixed pizzeria. In New York, I suspect, although I don't have any proof for this, that there were street vendors selling pizza on the street in much the way it was done in Naples. Also, while there were fixed pizzerias in Naples, there were also a lot of people selling it on the street. And I suspect in Little Italy in the 1880s, 1890s, as the first serious wave of Southern Italian immigration is coming in. People are making pizzas on the streets. By the time Lombardi's opens in 1905 or 1906, he's actually, Lombardi starts as a baker, and he is in the basement of a food store making the bread and decides, you know what, I'm going to just take this over and turn it into a pizzeria and does the coal-fired pizzeria. Uh, One of the things I think is most interesting about Lombardi's as an expression of an American food, as opposed to a strictly Italian food, you look at the menu, and the first four add-ons on the pizza, they're all meat-based. They're prosciutto, prosciutto cotto, uh, meatballs, salamis—you know that sort of thing. You would never have seen that in Naples at that time. I mean, Naples was not a meat-heavy culture. If you needed meat, you needed to go northern Italy. But Naples, southern Italy, very light vegetarian, uh, not vegans. Certainly you'd have the mozzarella and that sort of thing. But Lombardi's when they're putting the meats on, they're making it a very American-style pizza.
0: What's your favorite place for pizza in New York City?
1: Uh, Actually, it's one that I don't think is mentioned in Savoring Gotham. Yes, interesting. That would be the next edition. (laughs) uh, The the next edition, uh, and it's called Lasso. It's down the block from Lombardi's. If you go to Lombardi's on uh, Spring Street, walk down, I think it's uh, Mott Street, and on the next block, right before you get to Kenmar, is Lasso on the other side of the street. And I'm kind of a Snob, and actually, I like Italian pizza, and they are doing what they call DOC pizza, denominazione originale controllata. It is there's a pizza association in Italy that has given essentially a trademark to the qualities of a true Italian pizza, it's done in a wood fired oven. Not a coal-fired oven. American pizza. New York pizza is coal-fired. Italian pizza is wood-fired. And their authentic pizza has the buffalo mozzarella, tomatoes, uh, a little olive oil, and very, very simple. I don't like to throw a lot of other stuff on my pizza.
0: What do you think of the proliferation of all of these dollar pizza places throughout the city?
1: You know what? They're great for a filling food, you know, a quick snack. Um, They may not be the world's greatest pizza, but you know what? They serve an important function because, you know, food has become, at least on some levels, a little precious, a little shishi, and that's not what New York should be about. We have plenty of room for high-end places, but we also need to have plenty of room for lots of Fun, filling, reasonably well-prepared pizzas and or foods in general. It doesn't have to be pizza. It can be, you know, any one of the what I'll call ethnic foods. I mean, virtually everything at one time or another was an ethnic food. French food is an ethnic food in certain ways. I, you know, I don't think there's any food that you can drain the ethnicity out of it. Uh, but we certainly have plenty of room for that. We should have that.
0: You mentioned that pizza was once sold on the street. It was a street food That's a rich history here in New York City, selling food on the street.
1: Absolutely. Uh, The street vendors, I mean, that was quite a political issue, actually. Uh, By the time you got to the 1930s and 1940s, the streets were, uh, in certain neighborhoods, the Lower East Side, were so jam-packed with street vendors— Uh, And for obvious reasons, it was a very low capital investment, so recent immigrants would be able to afford to have uh, a little push cart or a little stall. But it was a problem with traffic. I mean, suppose you know there was a fire someplace and the fire trucks couldn't get through because of all of the street vendors. Uh, so Mayor LaGuardia actually was one of the proponents of getting the street vendors off of the street and into covered markets. And in the uh, very late uh, 1930s, you know, basically just the turn of 39 to 40, uh, a number of the covered markets uh, opened that moved the street vendors inside. The Essex Street Market was where so many of the Lower East Side vendors uh, ended up going. And it had a, a definite impact on people's uh, shopping habits. Um, there was one story I read about uh, so many of the Jewish street vendors moved into Essex Street. Uh, and as some of the Jewish uh, people moved out of the Lower East Side through you know, economic advancement to the Upper East Side and beyond, there was still what they called the mink coat trade. On Sunday night, women in the mink coats would come down with their drivers and get their pickles and whatever else they hmm. needed for a little taste of home. But they're not doing the daily shopping. I mean, that's part of what was interesting about street vendors. They're serving a need for people who don't have big kitchens, have limited or no refrigeration. They need to do their shopping on a daily basis or a, you know every other day sort of basis. And those street vendors were there in making it very accessible uh, to do that. I think it's one of the interesting things that you still see people shopping on a pretty much daily basis in Chinatown. And I think a lot of those apartments in Chinatown Many are being gentrified, but some of them are still very, you know, old-style tenement, crowded, without uh, great uh, kitchen storage mm-hmm. facilities. So you've got people who, do, who are doing their shopping on a daily basis, going and, you know, getting the fish, the meat, the whatever the perishables are going to be, and, you know, cooking it that day.
0: You talked about people buying pickles. Now, pickles were once a plenty on the Lower East Side when the Jewish population was very large there. Now, I think there's like one pickle guy left. The pickle guys on Essex Street. Yeah,
1: yeah. And they're wonderful. But as people move around, obviously, the markets are going to adjust to whomever is coming in. Part of the I won't call it a problem, but part of the issue is that, you know, pickles, you get them jarred, they'll last a long time. Pickling is a preservation technique. You don't have to go and buy your pickles every day, although the ones, you know, the half sours that are still kind of crisp and tasty, those you do want uh, pretty fresh, and they're delicious. But it's just something that has fallen off as, you know, populations move, and, yep, you know, different things have come in. And you've got, you know, a lot of uh, Latino stores. I mean, that's one of the interesting things. You walk into the Essex Street Market now. First, it's a quarter of the size that it was in the 1940s. It's much, much smaller. There had been four buildings that had been brought together to create the market. And now it's down to one building. It is half-yuppified, fabulous organic produce, grass-fed meats, amazing cheeses, and half of it is very um, comparatively inexpensive uh, Latino products. You can get, you know, your huge prayer candles, just all sorts of things that you walk in and you realize you are in a very, very different uh, space from what you might think of as the yuppified Manhattan. It is not the yuppified Manhattan. There's still enclaves uh, that are fascinating to look at, shop at, and, you know, you see These huge, you know, 25-pound bags of rice that people are buying. It's a staple. It doesn't go bad. And you can buy a 25-pound bag of rice or a uh, 25-pound bag of masa.
0: What borough would you say is the most exciting right now when it comes to cuisine?
1: Oh, it's got to be Queens. And I say that just because of the extraordinary diversity that you have in Queens. Um, What you may not have is some of the Oat cuisines—that's that's Le Brooklyn, as they uh, <laughs> like to say—it's become so terribly uh, fashionable. Uh, so, I, I would say, in terms of just trying things that you have not had before, there is a tremendous increase in the amount of Himalayan rim cuisines, which have been very, very hard to find until the past. Oh, five years or so. So if you want some uh, Nepalese food, Tibetan food, uh, go for the Nepalese. The Nepalese tend to be better cooks than the Tibetans. The momos are a little heavy, uh, but the rice dishes that are part of the Nepalese kitchen are really quite lovely and uh, delicate. So you go out to Jackson Heights and that area and um, find, you know, virtually anything that you could possibly want, other than classic French or, you know, a gastropub. You're not going to find that out there. But if you want to really travel without taking a passport, go out to Queens.
0: We talked about Dominique Ansel. We mentioned Delmonico's. But who are among the other most influential names in New York City food history, would you say?
1: Oh, boy. Well, I think Craig Claiborne did a huge amount in food history – Because he professionalized restaurant reviewing, and he really changed the game and changed what the food pages were like in the New York Times. First, it was changing the gender associations. The food pages had always been women's pages. There had been women editors, and I don't mean to uh, denigrate uh, Clementine Paddleford or any of the women who were writing, but suddenly having a male voice writing for the Times created a certain level of respect. Uh, His uh, ability to uh, review restaurants very knowledgeably. Uh, He had some culinary and hospitality training, so he was bringing uh, a certain professionalism uh, to the process. I think He's someone that really, really changed the way we looked at food and the way media reacted to food, and the two feed on each other.
0: The Zagats were also game changers in New York City.
1: They were tremendously uh, influential because they were the first crowdsourcers. You know, they would allow people to give their reactions to food. Uh, they managed to edit these down into a collective public opinion, and it really— started to react against the Craig Claiborns and the Mimi Sheraton's and all of the restaurant reviewers who had a monopoly on judging what was a fine restaurant. Or when I say fine, I mean interesting, good quality, not necessarily the highest, most expensive, because all of the restaurant reviewers took joy in finding the kind of hole in the wall that was serving terrific food at very reasonable prices. Uh, But Sagat's decided everybody eats, everybody has a palate. Why are we putting these professionals on such a pedestal when they're not in your mouth tasting the food the way you're tasting it? And, you know, Zagat's first with the print media and now with so much of the online stuff. uh, It has really shifted the way uh, people look at food, and I think it's also a very generational Shift. I see people who are significantly younger than I am think that crowdsourcing is the best way to go about finding a good restaurant. Uh, I've been around a while and I still tend to like to go with a professional reviewer. Uh, And I think sometimes it's reading between the lines on a lot of the crowdsourcing Mm -hmm. things. Uh, I think I can see. What is unbridled enthusiasm without having a lot of background versus someone who's been around the block a few times and says, I know the difference between a well-executed pick-your-favorite dish mm-hmm. and a poorly executed pick-your-favorite dish. And I'd rather have someone professional helping to guide me in uh, choosing restaurants.
0: Now, in addition to being associate editor of this book, Savoring Gotham, you're a food studies professor at the New School, and you're the chair of the Culinary Historians of New York.
1: That's correct.
0: So safe to say food is just your thing, huh? That's
1: what I do for a living. Um, I have uh, been a trained chef. I cook professionally for more than 25 years. Uh, I write a lot about food. I teach about food. So, yes, I am um, – I hate the term foodie, and I don't think of myself as one who's rushing to, you know, the next big thing. As I say, I've never had a crown nut, but I am a professional uh, foodster. Maybe I'll call it – A foodster. I'll, You'll create your own term. A, a new term, yes, a foodster.
0: <laughs> What inspired your interest in food?
1: Moving into an apartment in New York that had a decent-sized kitchen. Uh, Food is a second career for me. Uh, I spent 10 years practicing law, and the idea of coming home and preparing a meal at the end of a day and actually having a product an hour later that you could sit down and enjoy and made people happy was much nicer than trying to bash skulls in as a (laughs) lawyer um, and just very, very different um, uh, profession, obviously. And I found that as I started cooking and enjoying the very tactile process, I became just increasingly obsessed with it and decided... Yeah, maybe I should do something about this. So I, after 10 years, I stopped practicing law, went to cooking school and have, as I say, cooked professionally and researched and written about food.
0: Now, this book, Savoring Gotham, is pretty much an encyclopedia of food and food history in New York City. It's more than 700 pages. How would you say people should go about using this book?
1: I think you first go to... Look up facts on things you know a little something about. Um, Say you are interested in bagels. Well, you know, there's a lovely entry on bagels. And then the other thing I would suggest, just open to a random page, which is actually what I do. Uh, Sometimes I'll pull it off and read three or four pages just at random, whatever opens. And you will see uh, so many different stories ranging from... Uh, some businesses. uh, Some are kind of economic. Actually, on the train coming up, I was looking at some of the commodities markets. There's uh, an entry there, very interesting business and financial history, Um, looking for foodstuffs that you like. If you are a coffee drinker, there are five or six different entries dealing with Coffee, coffee houses, coffee shops, they are not the same thing. They are very, very different uh, coffee roasters. And you can see how this very daily quotidian sort of commodity uh, has both influenced us today and has uh, changed through time. And it really has changed uh, dramatically the role of the coffee house and coffee shop in New Yorkers' daily experience.
0: Kathy, thank you so much for coming in. My pleasure. Kathy Kaufman is the associate editor of Savoring Gotham, a food lover's companion to New York City. It's out now from Oxford University Press. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. You can get past editions of the show at any time at wfuv.org cityscape, or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. We're also on Facebook and Twitter. Join us there for show updates and New York City tidbits, as well as to share your suggestions for future episodes. I'm George Boldarki.